1: Hello and welcome to a new episode in the New Books and Gender Studies podcast. My name is Kyle McMillan, one of the co-hosts of the channel. And today I am here with Nancy Weiss Malkiel. uh, And we're going to be talking about her book, Keep the Damned Women Out, The Struggle for Co-Education. Professor, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing fine, Kyle. Glad to be with you.
1: Yeah, um, so if you just wanted to start out maybe talking a little bit about... Your professional career, your sort of academic trajectory, and what ultimately led you to write this sort of extensive work on the struggle for coeducation
0: i 'd be happy to do that. Tom. I joined the history department at Princeton in nineteen sixty nine right out of graduate school as an assistant professor and I worked uh, as a teacher in 20th century American history, broadly defined, and my scholarship for uh, the next couple of decades was in African American history, civil rights, black politics, organizations for racial advancement. I spent 24 years as dean of the college at Princeton starting in 1987 and ending in 2011. When I came back to the faculty, um it seemed to me that uh, continuing to work in a field African American history that I had really not worked in for uh many many years was probably not uh, the best idea. I had an invitation from uh the president of Princeton Shirley Tillman who asked if I would be interested in writing a history of coeducation at Princeton and that fit very well with uh, the fact that I had uh essentially lived co-education at Princeton since I arrived at the same time as the first undergraduate women, I was very much interested because of my responsibilities as a faculty member and a dean in uh the education of women as well as men at Princeton. And I'm an alumna of uh, Smith College and spent a decade as a trustee there. So women's education has been very much uh, on my mind for a long time. So I started out to write a history of coeducation at Princeton. And what I soon came to realize was that there was a more interesting uh, question because there was such a, a flood of decisions for coeducation um, at elite uh private uh, colleges and universities in the United States and the United Kingdom in a very short space of time starting in 1969 and so that's how I got to wondering why that flood uh had happened how it worked uh and with what uh results
1: yeah so when you were focusing on those particular schools, uh, who ended up being sort of the you know, change change agents or sort of the, the main actors in this push for coeducation?
0: Well, Princeton and Yale are the prime movers. Uh they get started and everyone else is watching them and um not surprisingly following uh their lead. Um in the United Kingdom it's uh, uh, another story, Cambridge and Oxford men's colleges begin admitting women in 1972 at Cambridge and in 1974 uh at Oxford. And they're doing that for reasons local to the United Kingdom um, and not uh directly because of what was going on in the United States, even though what was happening at Princeton, Yale had an influence there uh, as well.
1: Yeah, so a large part of uh, sort of your chapters on the, you know, context of the U.S. and the U.K. is sort of the broader social context surrounding the schools. So what was sort of happening around this time that sort of influenced this uh, sort of call to co-education or struggle to get there for some of the schools?
0: Well, uh, let me answer that in uh, two ways. The first is that uh, the context of the 1960s was critically uh, important. The civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the student movement, the women's movement. uh, By the end of the 1960s, colleges and universities looked quite different than they had at the beginning of the uh, decade. This is a period also when um, a number of these very elite, uh, very traditional private institutions uh, begin to um, diversify their student bodies um, to admit more public school students, students from less advantaged backgrounds, Catholic and Jewish students, even some African Americans. So this... Overall, social context um, uh, sets a framework within which coeducation becomes uh, something that is no longer so uh, unimaginable but rather seems to be um, almost uh, necessary um, The trigger in this uh general uh, context uh, for Princeton and yale and then for dartmouth and for Vassar, for a number of the institutions that go co-ed, the trigger um, was admissions. And the fact that by the late 1960s, if you look at Princeton and Yale, who were, as I said, the prime movers here, their applications are beginning to fall off and their yields. uh, In other words, the decisions that admitted students make are beginning to change. And what they see is that high school students, male high school students, they liked to refer to as the best boys uh, were changing their views on where they wanted to go to school. They wanted to go to school with girls. And this is when Harvard begins to pull away from Princeton and Yale in admissions. So losing some of their hold on the best boys was in the view of people at Princeton and Yale, really unsustainable. Um, And they looked to admit women, not because they had some moral conviction about educating women, not because of some high-minded commitment to the education of women. Uh, They admitted women um, because it was a way that they believed to help them recover their hold on these best boys. So they looked to co-education where women would play an instrumental role in improving the education of men.
1: Yeah, so that kind of leads into my next question. It, it seems like in the U.S. context, um, there's sort of this uh, dynamic between what you were talking about in terms of the Uh, academic competition and sort of the admissions battles uh, that these schools were engaging in, but also the attitudes of some of the alumni. So I don't know if you wanted to speak to sort of what does that push and pull look like at each of these schools?
0: Uh, Alumni are uh, highly problematic uh, in this uh, uh, drama, uh, if you will. Uh, They were... uh, fiercely opposed in the main, not entirely, uh, but um, uh, they thought that the way things were, the way things had been when they attended these schools, uh, was the way they should continue to be. Um, uh, Let me give you some um, examples of this um, opposition. Uh, Take the title of my book, Uh, It comes from a letter from a Dartmouth alumnus to the chair of the Dartmouth board in 1970. He wrote, for God's sake, for Dartmouth's sake, and for everyone's sake, keep the damned women out. When the Yale Corporation first began (coughs) talking about uh, the possibility of educating undergraduate women at Yale, one alumnus responded uh, this way. He wrote, There is a glory to tradition. I think of the girl filled weekend, the cocktail party, the dances, the plays, the big football game. Then there is the adventure of journeying to the girls' colleges. And, gentlemen, uh, he said, Let's face it, charming as women are, they get to be a drag if you're a forced to associate with them each and every day. Think of the poor student who has a steady date. He wants to concentrate on the basic principles of thermodynamics, but she keeps trying to gossip about the idiotic trivia all women try to impose on men. You get countless examples of alumni of these institutions saying, Simply impossible, you will change our treasured alma mater irreparably and for the worse if you admit women
1: right and what struck me um at least at some of the universities that you look at um was you know most of them would do sort of a um a study to see whether or not coeducation would be you know usually they would uh, frame it as feasible right so Mm -hmm. You know, at these different institutions, you know, what were they aiming to, you know, really sort of grasp with these studies?
0: Look, if these institutions had found a way to bring women in close proximity without actually going co-ed, they would have leapt at the chance. Um, That's the first thing um, to make clear. Every place that there's serious consideration of coeducation tried very, very hard to do it short of coeducation. In other words, look at look at Yale. Yale starts by seeing if they can persuade Vassar to move to New Haven in some coordinate relationship uh, with Yale. And when Vassar tells Yale, that it will stay in Poughkeepsie, thank you very much. Yale's next move uh, is to think about how Yale can establish its own Coordinate College for Women. Princeton, seeing Yale talking to Vassar, began talking to Sarah Lawrence College about the possibility of Sarah Lawrence moving to Princeton across the lake from the university close enough Um, to solve the problems created by the absence of women students, but not so close as to fundamentally change the university. Dartmouth explored the possibility of getting Wheaton College or Skidmore College to move to uh, Hanover. Any of these presidents would have jumped at the chance to establish uh, a coordinate college uh, for women if they could have pulled that off because that would have solved all the problems of wouldn't have changed the fundamental male camaraderie, wouldn't have changed the special um, uh, relationships and environment of an all-male institution that had for hundreds of years uh, produced uh, alumni who went on to leadership positions where these male friendships were so important to them, the male bonding, um, but they they couldn't make that happen uh, so what were
1: the attitudes of the male students that were already at these institutions once coeducation became sort of this
0: hot button issue? Well, they were very complicated on the one hand, uh, there was a lot of student support for coeducation uh, On the other hand, when the women actually arrived they were less sure. The the male students were less uh, sure. And remember that these were male students who had applied to their institution and uh, matriculated at their institution when it was all male. So it was one thing to say in the abstract, it would be nice to have women here. It was another to actually bring them and change uh, the uh, place. There are... Lots of examples uh, of male students responding in ways that suggested that maybe it wasn't so comfortable and easy for them. For example, actually sitting down in a lecture hall next to a woman student, a lot of men thought no, they just couldn't do that. So there would be circles of empty seats around the one or two women uh in the classroom because men just couldn't quite uh handle it in um, there were explicit um statements to um women saying essentially you don't belong here and the benign version went something like this it's a girl it talks you know, when women would speak up in the classroom, there were titters around the room. Um, uh There were, uh, there was amazement that a woman could actually sit there and participate in an intellectual conversation. Um, uh, there were more uh, explicit forms of bad behavior. Dartmouth men, for example, hung banners from their dormitory windows declaring no co-eds. Or coeds go home. Um, Dartmouth men, um, when women entered the dining hall at Dartmouth, Dartmouth men shouted out numbers meant as ratings of attractiveness, as if they were rating, uh, the quality, uh, of a, uh, dive. Um, Dartmouth men, uh, through the fraternities, uh, engaged in, um, really, uh, Degrading dangerous behaviors and scurrilous verbal assaults on women's students they marauded through uh women's dormitories um, uh they um they really behaved abominably and it wasn't just um Dartmouth you get behaviors at um uh, at yale at princeton uh at other places where you just think, um, come on kids uh, you really need to Uh, grow up, this isn't the way you're supposed to behave uh, in uh, college. I think it was, you know, a lot of these students um, had gone to all-male schools. Um, A lot of them um, just didn't know how to handle themselves around uh, women. And the, the curious part was that the social interaction was supposed to be the big draw of having women there. Uh, But it was very awkward uh, for men at Princeton or at Yale uh, to date their new female classmates. Um, And they fell back on their uh, time-honored practices of importing uh, dates from women's colleges. Um, So you'd uh, you'd be a friend during the week, uh, but on the weekend, um, you, you, the woman student, would be supplanted by an imported uh, date. I remember at Princeton, uh, in the first years of coeducation, um, male students would say, "Well, I'm sure, given the ratio uh, that women, each woman student, already has, a, uh, plenty of people lined up to date her." and so I'm not going to risk asking somebody out because I'll get shot down. And so what happened was that the women students sat home Saturday nights without dates because the men wouldn't ask them out because they were sure um, that they would get shot down in favor of uh, other offers.
1: Yeah, and part of the... um Sort of reasoning behind, like you said earlier, these institutions wanting to open up are sort of, you know, how can we sort of increase our admissions? And part of that has to do with the attitudes of women that were in high schools at this time. So, what did that have to do with uh, the push toward co education?
0: Well, men and women students were accustomed to associating with each other in high school. In the context of the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, they were accustomed to uh, participating in protests together. Uh, They were accustomed, uh, some of them, to participating in uh, civil rights activism, um, registering black voters, for instance, picketing um, uh, segregated establishments. So there was a lot of um, commonality in uh, what these students shared in the context of the politics of the 1960s. So the notion that you would not go to school together in college when you were doing all these other things together It
1: seemed uh, really anachronistic. Right. And another uh, sort of anachronistic point of view is some of the uh, men that were in these positions of power at these institutions sort of thought of, you know, an all-male institution being sort of this thing that is quickly becoming a thing of the past, and one of the things that you point out in your book is the interesting position that that line of thinking puts the, all, the traditionally all women's colleges in. So I don't know if you want to speak a little bit about that.
0: And it was um, uh, tough for women's colleges to figure out how to navigate um, in this changing uh, environment. The first thing that happened was that when Princeton, Yale, uh, for example, uh, went co-ed and uh, admitted transfer students, large numbers of students from Smith and Wellesley, for example, were offered uh, transfer admission, and um, (coughs) you know the the position of Um, the men's colleges, Kingman Brewster, um, the president of Yale, would say um, to colleagues at Smith and Wellesley, look, I I can't help it if large numbers of your students want to leave and come to New Haven, and it would be unfair if we didn't offer admission to the most talented among them um, and then let them decide what they're going uh, to uh, do. So um, there was an inherent tension in terms of um, what the first moves to college education uh, were going to do to the enrolled student bodies at these schools. But then the question was, um, essentially, how are we going to compete um, in a world in which um, so many of the the most elite, most attractive men's colleges are admitting women um, they're admitting the women we the women's colleges would normally uh have attracted and what is going to be our fate going forward? um This is a big problem and challenge um for the women's colleges, and they they were really <coughs> caught because on the one hand they thought that they were going to lose uh, a significant part of their traditional constituency of the brightest uh, female high school students. On the other hand, uh, if they were to contemplate going co-ed themselves, um, they feared that they would be unable to attract um, a large number of men of sufficient quality to match the women um, who were enrolled so, it was really a conundrum uh and they didn't want to go coed Smith and Wellesley certainly didn't they thought they had to seriously explore what would happen um if they went uh coed uh, but this was a really tough uh problem for them. Vassar decided uh to admit uh men um Vassar's circumstances. Were different from Smith and Wellesley's. Um, uh, they had had the uh, about ten month old, ten month long, serious exploration of the possibility of teaming up with Yale uh, in New Haven. They were located geographically uh, far from men's schools, far from cities. Um, they were in a much tougher spot than Smith or Wellesley in terms of the possibility of a reasonable social life uh, in proximity to their campuses. And their um, uh, admissions were dropping off um, much faster than uh, the admissions at Yale or Princeton. And Vassar had normally gone pretty much head-to-head with Smith and Wellesley in admissions, and that started to change significantly by the late 1960s. Um, So Vassar thought that they really needed to uh, act, whereas Smith and Wellesley could afford not to.
1: Yeah, and it was really interesting, sort of the role that um, the new wave of feminism had at these
0: women colleges. It was fascinating, in fact, because the uh, student Smith is a wonderful example. Student sentiment at Smith was overwhelmingly in favor of coeducation. At two different points, uh, in the late 1960s, Smith students were polled, and about two thirds of them said uh, essentially bring men to Northampton. So there's one more poll taken of Smith students in the fall of 1970, uh, and they flip. So that now two thirds say, don't uh, bring men to Northampton. We want to remain single sex. And the uh, primary reasons for their change of mind um, had, um, first of all, to do with the experience of Smith students who had gone as transfer students to Yale and Princeton, or who had gone on exchange programs to. Uh, places like Dartmouth, exchanges that were starting up, the 12 College Exchange, it was called. Well, what these students discovered was that it wasn't really quite so easy and comfortable um, to be uh, at Yale or at Princeton, and that they they really missed what they had back in uh, Northampton. So that was one of the influences on uh, changing Opinion. The other was the women's movement, um, and that was particularly salient at Smith because Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem were both Smith alums. uh, Both of them, uh, the public face of the women's movement of the 1960s and 1970s. And Gloria Steinem, in particular, was becoming very uh, prominent um, in. 1970, uh, and the senior class at Smith invited her to speak at commencement at Smith in 1971. And she gave very hard-hitting um, commencement address about the importance of uh, uh, Smith as a feminist institution, the importance of remaining uh, a college uh, for women, so the, the uh feminism has a big effect on uh changing views especially uh at Smith.
1: Yeah, and toward the sort of, sort of shifting gears here toward the second half of the book, um you sort of talk about uh what's happening in the United Kingdom. And so I wondered if you just want to first speak to, you know, if For those of listening that may not know, sort of the structure of uh, U.K. institutions that differ from how we understand institutions of higher education, and then sort of what is happening at these schools that made you sort of include them in your book?
0: Well, um, uh, I focused uh, especially on Oxford and uh, Cambridge, and Oxford and Cambridge are organized um, with a lot of colleges. Um, uh, within the university structure, and those colleges have a lot of uh, autonomy. Those colleges, in the Cambridge case, included three colleges expressly for women, and then the largest uh, majority of the colleges were for men. In the Oxford case, uh, five colleges uh, expressly for women and uh, the large majority of the colleges for uh, men. Um, these women's colleges had been founded in the late 19th century, but Oxford and Cambridge had been very slow Really to embrace them, um, and, uh, to allow women actually to earn degrees from the university. It took decades after the colleges were founded. What happened in the 1960s in the UK is that there was a general national recognition of, uh, the importance of opening additional places for students in British universities. Um, and uh, the importance especially of more places for uh, women. Um, And uh, Cambridge and Oxford were, in effect, uh, the worst offenders. The percentage of women nationwide in the 1960s in British universities is about 28%. In uh, Cambridge and Oxford, many, many fewer Uh, women uh, than that. So um, there was a sense that um, Cambridge and Oxford needed to do their part to open more places for women, Um, but the women's colleges themselves couldn't do it. They didn't have the the resources, the wherewithal to educate more women. So if there were going to be more women uh, at Cambridge and Oxford, it would have to come through men's colleges, uh, going, uh, co-ed. Um, uh, it was also the case that the movements of the 1960s that were influential in the United States were felt, uh, in the UK as well. Not the civil rights movement, of course, but the student movement, the anti-war movement, then the women's, uh, movement. Um, uh, so the, the notion that change would, would be appropriate was a current that um was quite um uh, uh common um to the u k as well as the United States and the thing that happened in the u k is that in a number of these colleges well the way these colleges worked uh the faculty they're they're called fellows or dons um the faculty are in charge they are the decision makers in the colleges and what happened in these colleges is that uh new cohorts of fellows were appointed in the nineteen sixties who were much younger and more progressive uh than the older uh fellows who had never been anywhere but Oxford or Cambridge. And for these young people it seemed um really uh out of place to continue to have single sex um institutions. So um uh, Uh, Those were some of the factors that influenced what was going on. The other, uh, there is a form of the uh, strategic advantage that I spoke about in the United States that came from admitting women to uh, regain one's hold on the best male high school students. In the UK, it went um, this way. Uh, The colleges at Cambridge and Oxford, uh, respectively, uh, are ranked in uh, tables called the Norrington table and the Tompkins table. And those are essentially rankings of the colleges in each university in terms of the academic achievements of uh, their uh, students. And the way it worked, the women's colleges were at the top of these tables both at Oxford and at Cambridge. So the men's colleges that decided to go co-ed first tended to be middling colleges, not the strongest colleges, and they thought that by admitting women, they could do two things. One, they could um, uh, draw some of that talent from the women's colleges um, and improve their own academic standing. And they also thought that uh male students who might otherwise have thought well we'll we'll apply to the strongest colleges at Oxford and Cambridge that if the middling colleges went co-ed uh some of those stronger male students might want to come uh there and and that that would uh improve the fortunes of these uh colleges that were in the vanguard of going uh coed
1: Yeah, and it was interesting to see the different roles that uh, alumni played in the UK versus the United States. And part of that has to do, I'm sure, with the sort of just financial structure between the two countries, correct? Oh,
0: absolutely. Um, You know, in the United States, alumni are critical uh, to the uh financial well being, uh and the financial strength of these institutions, alumni giving, annual giving and uh, uh capital gifts of uh consequence have been just uh essential to the uh ability of these I- institutions to grow and uh flourish uh, that was not the case in uh, the UK the structure of funding for um these uh, institutions just didn't uh, depend on uh, soliciting uh money from uh, alumni and that meant that the graduates were less uh consequential less uh, uh, less of a possibly obstructionist factor Uh, than was true uh, in the United States. Um, Alumni of Oxford and Cambridge colleges also came to understand what alumni of uh, American institutions came to understand, which was that as much as they might want to preserve things the way they had been, In the all male world they had known, um, going co ed actually opened opportunities for their daughters and granddaughters. And so something that looked unthinkable, um, in the abstract became very attractive, in fact, to, uh, graduates who had daughters and granddaughters who would like to follow the fathers and grandfathers to, uh, the uh, colleges.
1: Yeah, so I think that an appropriate sort of uh, maybe uh, expansive last question is how you sort of end the book. Um, so you kind of lay it out with what did coeducation do and what did it not do? And I think that's a really important point that you make. So if you wanted to get into that.
0: Yeah, it's. Um it's complicated to appraise uh, the results of uh, these changes. Uh On the one hand, and undeniably, uh, uh, first-class educational opportunities are opened to women students uh, at the highest level, uh, and so you have access to... Uh, world-class faculty to facilities, to laboratories, to libraries um, that are unparalleled um, in the world and where women have every access uh, that men do. And that's critically important, it seems uh, to me. Um, coeducation education meant that um, women students had every opportunity that uh, men uh did to excel academically to uh prepare themselves for uh, professional careers for positions of leadership um in the same fashion uh that men uh, do and if you look at the women who have been the most consequential uh, uh leaders in various fields you know up until coeducation uh there are women who went to women's colleges. But after these uh institutions admit women, um the most consequential women leaders have come out of uh co ed uh institutions. Uh no surprise, uh I think. Um on the other hand, um uh co education has not solved Perplexingly gendered uh conundrums, problems challenges um uh, to give just a few uh examples um it continues to be the case at the best American uh institutions at Oxford at Cambridge, that at the very highest levels academically uh men are outperforming. Uh, women. It continues to be the case that there are gendered uh, uh, patterns of selection of um, subjects of study so that in math, in physics, in computer uh, science, in economics, um, you have significantly fewer women uh, pursuing academic work than you do uh men it continues to be the case that university faculties are um uh, uh, not anywhere near evenly balanced in terms of gender even though student bodies uh are uh and as we know it continues to be the case that there are um, significantly fewer women than men in positions of leadership in major law firms, in major uh, uh, corporations. Uh, Women are underrepresented on boards of Fortune 500 uh, companies. There are just many fields in which it is just really tough uh, to uh, achieve some sort of uh, gender uh, parity. And leave aside the question, how much gender had to do uh with the american uh, presidential um election, um, there are all sorts of gendered uh challenges that coeducation didn't touch, and i I would argue couldn't have been expected to touch uh, sexual harassment on campuses um, is one example a second example is. The difficulty of conducting a high-level uh, professional career uh, for a woman at the same time that she's raising uh, children on uh, how the workplace does and does not accommodate um, those conflicting uh, imperatives. So there are a lot of gendered problems um, that continue inside and beyond the academy. Uh, that coeducation uh, as I said, coeducation didn't um uh, address and I think uh in the main um probably we wouldn't be uh fair in saying co education should have solved uh these problems.
1: Right. And I think you know that's a a good spot to leave this discussion but professor i really enjoyed your book and i'm sure that people that listen to this podcast will really enjoy it so thank you for joining us in the new Books network
0: thank you very much kyle pleasure to be with you